It's time for the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to, lots to talk about. Had a, had a couple of interesting conversations recently that got me thinking about the idea of invisible capital. Um, this idea that, and I get this a lot, especially when you're talking about people who are less fortunate. Um, but I had a conversation recently where somebody said to me, well, you know, I don't understand why you know people would want to work for minimum wage. And I don't understand why people don't have ambition and want to work hard. And I don't understand why... You you go down the list, and I've had these conversations for years. Uh, why people are homeless, why people underachieve, what, whatever whatever that frame is, and it really got me thinking about you know where we are as a society, where we're going. Because couple that with the conversation we had a couple of days ago about the fact that you know out of out of Davos, uh, the the report in the next couple of years, about forty percent of the jobs that we currently do are going to be gone. AI is going to, going to wipe them away, robotics, automation, whatever. It's going to be gone. And what are people going to do? But I I got thinking about this after having a conversation with someone who, who said, look, you know, I don't understand why, you know, look, I, I have this job and I've worked hard and 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 I do okay, you know, and, and, and I've had this before. You know, I'm not the brightest bulb in the box and, you know, I, I can do it. Anyone can do it. You know, this frame of, if I can do it, anyone can. And I say this about myself all the time. You know, if I can do it, you can do it. But the reality is, that's not completely true. And, you know, I normally have these conversations with people when they bring this up of, of well, okay, you know, you, you have this job that's afforded you a lifestyle. You know, how'd you get it? You know, how did you get to the job? Who bought you your first car? Who bought you your first suit? How did you get the the skills to do an interview? You know, how did you know that that you know work you had to show up at a certain time every day? You know, I have a friend who uh, who did uh, temp hiring for a, a couple of years, and the stories that he tells about about people who you know showed up to work with no shoes on, uh, said, "Hey, you know, do I have to show up every day?" Uh, at the same time, you know, there are things that we take for granted, things I call invisible capital. Um, you know, the idea that, that you have a family that, that helped you learn the idea of work ethic. The fact that you had a, a support system that helped you get your first car, helped you get an education, helped you do a lot of things that we take for granted. And, and it's easy to take that stuff for granted. It's simple. It's second nature because we don't even think about it because it's invisible. We just assume that everyone's at least where we are, at least minimally competent uh, where we where we most of us are. And the sad reality is, is not everyone's as fortunate. Not everyone is as privileged as, as you or I. Uh, some folks have more, more struggles. And I learned this at a young age. You know, I watched this happen as a child. Look, you know, when I grew up, where I grew up in the housing project uh, there in, in the west side of Cleveland, you know, people didn't have cars. Uh, there was no bus service. We weren't on on the bus route. 
Uh, public transit was a couple of mile walk away. Uh, there, there weren't jobs readily available in the neighborhood. So there were a lot of things that, that you know, now with middle class work ethic and middle class understanding, I take for granted. And I give you, for instance, and this is where my mind, you know, kind of kicked in on this. Uh, this week was supposed to be really cold in my neck of the woods. Uh, they said, you know, I think it was 16 degrees, you know, wind chill of four degrees. And getting a little bit older, um, you know, my feet are getting a little bit cold. I've never had that problem before. You know, two pair of socks and a pair of tennis shoes or a pair of work boots. I was always fine. This year, I said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna have cold feet. It's not gonna happen. So I went to the store. I, I bought a new pair of boots that I'm probably gonna wear ten, maybe fifteen times this year. Uh, but dropped two hundred bucks on a pair of boots, and didn't really think about it because the the mindset is my feet are not gonna be cold. But as I was thinking about about this and the the idea of invisible capital and things that we take for granted, I thought about how fortunate that I am that I can go and drop 200 bucks on a pair of boots that I'm going to wear 10, maybe 15 times this year, maybe next year and the year after. And I was thinking about a story my grandmother told me, you know, back when my, my, my mother and, and her brother and sister, sister were small. Um, my grandfather had to save for new work boots, you know, save for months to be able to buy a new pair. And she told the story about how, you know, you know, he, he went to work with, with boots with holes in them uh, and took the money that, that he had saved to give to her to take the kids to the circus because he wanted them to have something better. So he was willing to delay his getting new work boots so that they could have this, this you know, this one day, which is, you know, kind of, you go, uh, you know, now I take that for granted, but you think back to then where they didn't have a lot. They were struggling just to make ends meet. And it was a new pair of work boots were something special. So, you know, I, my mind is in this space where I'm I'm feeling very, very privileged that I don't have to think about that, that I have the ability to go in and do this. And it, it got me thinking of all of this stuff coming together. This idea that, you know, we take for granted certain you know, work ethics, certain, uh, you know, things that parents did for us that not everyone has the, the good fortune to have. And normally when I ask, when I go through this exercise with someone, it comes back to Donald Trump. And I asked the question, I said, you know, why aren't we all real estate moguls? Why aren't we all, you know, real estate tycoons owning buildings all over the place? Why not? And it usually comes back to, well, we, we don't have the money. And I go, no, you know, look, you know, we, we, we could get the money. Maybe you could, you could rent, you could, you know, take loans out. Uh, it's possible. How come we're not all real estate tycoons? How come we are not gaming the system like Donald Trump? How come we're not, how come we're not Trump? And the reality is, is Donald Trump benefited from a ton of invisible capital. The Trump name gets you into rooms that you and I don't even know exists. Gave him opportunities that the, the average person would never have any opportunity to go anywhere near. Just because of the name. Because of the connections of his father. Because of the connections of his family. And, well, the expectations that come with that. 
Not to mention the the actual capital that the that the father gave him. Uh, you know, the millions of dollars that he got. But it's that it's that name, and it's also a lifetime of growing up with a father that gave him certain ideas. And I, and I go back to you know I think about my kids. My kids have benefited from me um, learning a little bit over the years. For instance, you know, each of my kids, the second they started working, we set up an IRA for them. You know, when they were 15, got their first job, we set up an IRA to put money away for their retirement. And people are like, oh my gosh, that's incredible. I go, I wish someone would have done that for me. I wish someone would have had the vision and foresight. I wish my grandparents would have known they didn't. I wish they would have been, you know, better prepared financially, but they weren't. If it weren't for their union pension and social security, they would have really been struggling. And it, and it got me thinking about where we are as a country in this moment. You know, my grandparents used to tell me stories about how during the Depression, people helped each other. If someone needed a hand, the community helped. If someone was hungry, the community helped. If someone needed, you know, work clothes. And, and again, I think of the work that I do. I work outside. And to take the job that I have, you need to have some actual capital to buy, you know, outdoor gear, gloves, winter clothes, hats, boots, all that. Transportation to get to and from work in the snow every day. You need to have that that ability, but also you need to be able to show up on time. You need to have the work ethic to show up every day. And this is something that that sadly we've we've missed. And there's nothing, there's nothing, it seems, that, that's there to help. And I go back to the, the stories of my grandparents. They helped their community. They helped their neighbors. So when I look at the fact that 40% of the jobs are going to go away, I think about, are we going to, because there is going to be mass suffering and desperation will we come back together is what they lived through is that part of of what what struggle is about because understand we have become a very privileged society and i think of myself i am very privileged we have become a very self-centered society and the wealthier that we get the more self-centered it seems we get so all of these social programs that, that have been under attack for the last 40 years, because I don't want to pay higher taxes. This destruction is eventually going to come around and, and go after all of us, or 40% of us who are going to lose jobs, of which I will probably be one of them. So I, I come back again and I think about is this part of what, what struggle is about? That then we'll come back to the idea of community and helping your neighbor and, and all of that. Or, or were they just different people? Was it a different time that's never going to come back? How do we bring the country back together? And I think, I think and I've been saying for a very long time, sadly, the only thing that does that is, is pain and suffering is struggle. So when the tsunami of job losses happens, and, and it will happen, 
uh, because we, we're seeing stories every day of you know companies they're going to bring in robots to work in factories and we're going to you know we're going to do away with you know all of the, the fast food jobs and all of the the low low income low wage jobs we're going to do away with those and i actually had some people who emailed me recently when talking about this said well good riddance we don't need them we don't need those jobs it'll cut costs it'll be it'll be good for it'll be good for society as a whole to be done with all of that and you go, really? You believe that doing away with people's livelihoods, well, it'll make them do something else. And I go back to, for most people doing some of the, the, the jobs that they're doing, it's the best that they can do. It's where their skills are. And unless we're willing as a society to do a whole major education campaign and do a lot of outreach to our neighbors, this sadly is where we are. And if you don't have a good mix of employment for people to be able to make their way and to be able to support themselves and their families with a reasonable wage job, we're going to have chaos. And when those truck driving jobs goes away and, you know, you got a million, maybe two million uh, people who used to make a reasonable living now on the on the breadline, what kind of chaos do you think is coming out of that? When there's no more fast food jobs, everything's a kiosk and you can just like a, a giant vending machine. What kind of society are we going to have? And the thing is, is look, uh, I'm fortunate to have the privilege that I have. I want everyone to be able to at least be where I'm at. You know, I, I talk about this quite often. I think about the, the kid that is growing up in the housing project that I grew up in. I think about that 10-year-old that I was, thinking about what the world was going to be and what my opportunities and my chances were going to be. And, and I got to tell you, was bleak. Had no idea of the life that I would lead. And I think about that kid growing up there now, and I hope he's got better, I hope he's got better visions, better hopes. And I hope we as a society do a better job of helping. But I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. Got a lot to get to, lots to talk about. Uh, some some interesting election stuff coming up. Um, kind of some, some kind of funny stuff. Uh, we're going to take a break right back after this. Stick around. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work for America. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work for America. 
Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. Our quote of the day from New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. Uh, he was quoted in The Hill as saying, uh, <laughs> uh, that is a great example of this is not the dr- Donald Trump uh, the disrupt disruptor of 2016, he said this guy has lost his fastball, and he's talking about the fact that Donald Trump uh, confused Nikki Haley with Nancy Pelosi, and and I'm going, you know, I, I don't know how you do that. I'm not quite sure how that happened, uh, but he he said during his stop, uh, Trump said during his stop, Nikki Haley, you know they. Uh, do you know they destroyed all of the information, all of the evidence, everything deleted and destroyed it all? All of it because of lots of things like Nikki Haley is in charge of security. He went on to say, we offered her 10,000 people, soldiers, National Guard, whatever they wanted, and they turned it down. They don't want to talk about that. These are very dishonest people. Um, Now, he meant to say Nancy Pelosi, all those lies, because all that stuff's been debunked, didn't happen. Maybe in Trump's head it happened. Uh, Maybe now in the revisionist memory, uh, that is what's banging around between his ears, that's what happened. But in reality, did not. Not even a little bit. Uh, And and no evidence at all, except, you know, of course, what what Donald Trump says. Now, uh, that said... (laughs) Uh, he's still going to be the Republican nominee, and the you know the the polling from New Hampshire has him ahead of Nikki Haley by a sizable amount. Um, he's he's got over fifty percent. I think the last poll I saw had him at fifty five, had her somewhere in the in the high thirties. Um, because DeSantis dropped out. Did, did I mention Ron DeSantis dropped out? Did anyone care? Uh, no, he dropped out, and this is this is the most Republican thing ever. Honestly, the, one of the most Republican things ever. Uh, he endorsed Donald Trump. So he called him desanctimonious, called him meatball run, insulted his wife. You, know, you name it, Trump did it to DeSantis. And DeSantis turns around and, and endorses him. Uh, very Ted Cruz of him. And, and I got to tell you, maybe, maybe I just don't, maybe, maybe I don't get it. But if you were to insult my wife, you were to go after my family, there would be a much different outcome. But yet Republicans, as I say, they fall in line. And we're going to watch over the next several days uh, the rest of the party fall in the line. Uh, For me, what I'm watching for, and look, I'm expecting all of them, the House Freedom Caucus, uh, they've endorsed him. Uh, They've come around. You know, they're, they're now back there. Uh, for me, the, the one that's important, because I expect most of the Republicans, uh, they're going to they're going to they're going to fall into line because it's what they do. Uh, Democrats fall in love. Republicans fall in line. Uh, but I, I'm waiting to see if Mike Pence, uh, Mike Pence's chief of staff endorsed him. Uh, I'm waiting to see if Mike Pence falls in line. Uh, this because this is an interesting frame. You're going to have Mike Pence uh, testifying against him. And then it may even be the same press conference. Uh, Mike, you testified against Donald Trump. Yes, I testified against him, but I'm endorsing him for president. Yeah, I I can see it coming. I can see it being played out because that's sadly, 
That's what the Republican Party has become. Uh, it is a cult. And you had better fall in line. Uh, now, the, big, the, the interesting story is who's going to replace Mike Pence? Because clearly, you know, Mike Pence is not going to be uh, the VP choice. It's not going to happen uh, because he proved himself disloyal. And, and understand, for Trump, loyalty is everything. And what we're going to see if he is elected is lots of lots of retribution, lots of payback, not much in legislation. There, there's going to get nothing done. There'll be no accomplishments. There'll be no legislation move. There'll be nothing to actually make people's lives better. But there will be a lot of, um, there'll be some interesting, interesting, uh, interesting press conferences of, of people doing perp walks. And the question now is, who's going to be the VP poll? Uh, now, Trump has said, you won't be surprised. <laughs> okay. Uh, but the short list, uh, in my mind, is, is Elise Stefanik, the, the Republican from New York. She's been out there doing the shows, you know, doing doing the doing the work. Uh, there's Christy Nome, the governor of South Dakota. Uh, she sure wants it. I don't think Carrie Lake is going to be it. Uh, I, I just I just I don't see that because uh, I think she I think she takes I think she takes too much spotlight from Trump. So I know a lot of people are like, no, Carrie, like, no, I don't think so. Um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, her name's been thrown out there. The governor of Arkansas. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, that's one of those things where. Um, I, if you got, if you've got Christy Nome to look at, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to take, you're not going to take, no, you're not going to take Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Sexist. Who do you think we're talking about? <laughs> uh, some of the other names I've heard thrown out there, uh, Ben Carson, uh, his former HUD guy. Uh, I've heard, um, Tim Scott since Scott came out and endorsed him. I've even heard Tucker Carlson. And and I would love to see Tucker Carlson be be his VP. I think that would be interesting. Uh, and, and there's some outside shots of of you know I think uh, J D Vance's name has been thrown out. Lindsey Graham, which I'm not buying. Uh, but it's it's going to be interesting to see where this goes because I think we know uh, New Hampshire is going to come. I think you know Trump is going to win New Hampshire. The question is is by how much. If it's if it's fifty percent or below, eh, South Carolina could be interesting. It could prolong this a little bit, but I think the inevitable is going to be Trump. Trump's the guy. Now the question becomes: What do Democrats do to fill the void that's out that's out there? If there's no horse race for our media to focus on, if the primary's over. If there's nothing, what do you do to fill the void? Now, Trump is going to do everything he can do to suck the ox oxygen out of the air because it's what he does. And he does masterfully. You have to give him credit. He knows how to get attention. There is a guy who never, <laughs> never is ignored. Even if he's ignored, he, he figures out how to get people to pay attention to him. Democrats have to figure this out. And they've got to figure out what the message is. And I like what Michigan Governor uh, Gretchen Whitmer said. 
you know, you got to get the president, you know, leaning harder into abortion rights. You got to get him. If you want to win re-election, you got to go hard into this, and you've got to do it in a way that is plain, that is blunt, that is to the point, and it's personal. She said, "I think people want to know that this president, that this is a president that is fighting," and I think she said he has he has said that uh, to use maybe more, you know, blunt language. Maybe that would be helpful, and I yeah, that would be helpful. To get Joe out on the stump and and being Joe Biden. But also getting out there as as a party and balling up the digits. Getting out there and and picking a couple of issues that you really want to go after the Republicans on. Because, look, there's a lot of fertile ground. They have done nothing to lead this country. They have said on immigration they are going to do nothing. They've come right out and said, we're doing nothing. Nothing until Trump becomes president. Does that mean they're, if Trump doesn't become president, they're never going to do anything? Yes. Because as I've said before, the issue, the issue is more important than the solution. They need the issue. They need the border crisis. They want the border crisis. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some dark money funneled into getting people to the border. Because they need it. It's it's awful interesting how whenever something good happens for Biden, when things are, you know, Fox News is now got there's a caravan. It's it's quite convenient. Now I think they've learned their lesson from the abortion issue. Nobody thought that the Supreme Court was going to completely toss it. The abortion, the anti-abortion industry didn't think they were going to completely toss it, and now they're all looking for work. Because there's no more. But on immigration, this is something where Democrats need to take a position. They need to stand up and, and fight for what their what their immigration policy is. Which I think has to be with, we're going to secure our borders. We're going to bring people in uh, in an orderly fashion. We're going to help where we where where we need to. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna solve we're gonna solve this problem with or without Republicans. Because everybody wants wants a solution. Also, I think the abortion issue is a huge one. I think this is something that's going to motivate women to get to the polls. Also, on the labor front, over the next several months, we're going to see more factories being built. We're going to see more products made in the U.S. We're going to see more good economic news got to be hammering on this oh, i like my idea of the giant 20 foot cutouts going i did that got to be hammering on the fact that we have an industrial policy and i had someone say well you can't beat up on bill clinton yeah yeah i can i can beat up on the clinton legacy because it's part of what got us into the mess that we're in right now so for me um the fact that we're going in a different direction is a good thing and i think Joe Biden has to make a clear statement, a clear distinction that it's a new day in America and made in America is part of that. For me, it is it is that simple. But we'll see. I mean, it's going to be an interesting next couple of weeks how this all plays out. But I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, rick at the rick Tell me what you think. 
uh, something I said made you think, made got under your skin, made you mad, made you happy. You want to hear it? Rick at the RickSmithShow.com. Miss any portion of the program? Grab the podcast for our free speech TV audience. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you back here next time for our radio affiliates. We're going to take a quick break. Right back after this. Back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So tomorrow, the big uh, primary in New Hampshire. And and could this be the end of it? Could this be where, you know, Nikki Haley, well, gets thumped? Or does it is it close? And going into South Carolina, going into uh, the next round, she makes it a, makes it a game? Uh, I don't know. But here to give us some thoughts on the whole DeSantis flop. Uh, where Nikki Haley might be able to uh, pick up some of the slack. And, you know, is it is it over? I'm here to share some thoughts as someone who's run a bunch of campaigns. Our good friend Bob Nay, former Ohio congressman and political analyst. Bob, thanks for taking time for us. Thank you, Rick. So let's start first with uh, the DeSantis, uh, the DeSantis uh, flame out. Uh, he, he finally said, you know, there's no way I can win. I'm done. He drops out. And then in the in the most Republican thing ever, uh, he then endorses Trump. Um, why? Well, would you not endorse your future employer? I ask you that, Rick. Would you not endorse your future employer? No, no. See, this is where I guess I'm a little different. You know, you, you call my wife names. You go after my kids. You you embarrass well, me. You true. humiliate me. I'm sorry. I'm not kissing anybody's behind. That, that's true. Okay. Yeah, you're right. You're right on that. that yeah, because DeSantis took the Ted Cruz approach. They called Ted's wife, you know, names trumped it. But uh and I say that because DeSantis, I think, is obviously going to get some type of position in the Trump administration if Trump becomes president. But it's very interesting. I watched all the news reports from the national corporate media. I love how they they break this down into, you know, what they want to say. Well, it was the Trump factor. Uh, you know, he opposed Trump, but then he didn't oppose him. And then Trump said things about him. He didn't respond. Well, Nikki Haley and the rest were in the same boat. I look at it as a total, absolute, total different reason. And I think you know this. I know I said this on your show well over a month ago. And some of the shows I do, people say, well, what do you mean DeSantis will drop out before Haley? No way. I said, yes, he will. If you look at DeSantis, he was Jeb Bush redone. If you looked at Bush during the primaries and you turn the volume down, you could see Jeb Bush in agony. It was like Carl Rove was yelling, no, stay on that stage, Jeb. You're not going to get off the stage. And if then if you turned down the volume on DeSantis, it was the same thing. He wasn't happy to be there. He wasn't comfortable in his own skin. He had all these movements. He looked, I mean, in a nonverbal way, a psychiatrist could analyze him and say, look, the guy just didn't want to be there. He wasn't comfortable in being there. So he wasn't comfortable in his own skin. He had campaign mistakes. Anytime you start to fire campaign people in a presidential campaign, it's tough. You know, you re redo the the the, the uh, seats on the Titanic. So he did that. Some of the big money people that were supposed to come in because Nikki Haley was all of a sudden starting to get some traction, they pulled back. So you know, DeSantis, I I felt a month ago was was doomed. I mean, there's going to be some people happy because he's out, and then his hardcore supporters. Oh, there's one other thing I forgot to mention. He tried to take his drag shows across the U.S. What he did in Florida with 
the LGBTQ issues, the drag issues, et cetera. He tried to, in the beginning of that campaign, take it across the United States. It wasn't a traction issue. So, you know, he did pull back on that. But I will tell you, there are uh, there's a group of hardcore people for DeSantis that are extremely angry. And I'll tell you how angry they are, Rick. They haven't been this mad since the signs were taken off the water fountains. I mean, they're upset. Oh, wow. They're upset. Yeah, yeah, they're angry. That's anger. That that's real anger. But you know the thing is, and they're probably the people who put up the money, uh, because reportedly he spent like a hundred and fifty million dollars and got like I right. think like twenty three thousand votes, twenty three thousand four hundred votes. Uh, that's like sixty four hundred bucks a vote. That's more than Mike right. Bloomberg when he tried to buy the buy the presidency. Right. And he went to every county in, Ohio, in Iowa. That's what did him in, too. Every county, he was, what, two points above Nikki Haley. So, obviously, he knew what was ahead. And then Haley, for the first time, wouldn't debate, said, well, I'm not going to debate in New Hampshire. Donald Trump isn't up on the stage. Well, he wasn't up on the stage five previous times. Haley knew she had him in New Hampshire. And, look, I, you know, you've been in this business a long time. I have, too. You can be guaranteed somebody showed Ron DeSantis a poll and said, I don't care what you do in New Hampshire, you're you're done. Yeah. They they showed him that poll, and he didn't want to go further with it. Yeah, and and if you're right that he's looking for a gig in the in the administration, and that he's going to swallow his pride, he's going to take the meatball and the, the sanctimonious and the attacks on his wife, and he's going to swallow that and put it put it behind him because he he wants a job in the administration. You know, who knows? Maybe putting signs on water fountains. Um, <laughs> You know, I hope it's worth it. And I guess this is, would this be the moment when his stock was highest? Because, you know, there's still some people who think that Nikki Haley can can come in and, and, and maybe de- dethrone uh, the cult one. I don't think so. But uh, any thoughts? Well, two things. One, New Hampshire, of course, is going to be a big deal for Haley. If it comes out, you know, 80-20 with Trump, I still think she stays in. Because we all know the past history of people who have won New Hampshire that don't exist anymore, right? And so Iowa. I still think she stays in. And yes, and Iowa. And then, of course, you got Super Tuesday coming along. And then the most critical one is her home state. Now, you know, obviously, if Trump goes to town on her in her home state, uh, that's going to cause a, a particular problem. But but that's a big deal. I look at, at Nikki Haley a little different. And I think that for those who do not want Trump, the Koch brothers, obviously, and others, the Lincoln Project, you know, we can go down the list of those who do not want Trump. Um, and, you know, basically 50% of, of the party that went another direction. Nikki Haley, almost in a way, has to stay active and alive because everybody's looking towards, you know, what happens. And of course, there's still the outside talk about, well, what if Biden doesn't run and then trump can't run i mean there's all this speculation that i'm not saying is going to happen although we now live in a surreal world since 2016 yeah well this is I this is the horse race then this is this is what the yeah. horse race becomes because this there is isn't it. a horse race there's there's nothing going on uh trump is going to be the guy unless something happens to biden biden's going to be the guy so we've right. got to create some kind of some kind of tension, some kind of push-pull, some kind of race, so that people are paying attention, people care. We need to get something right. to get lathered up about, Bob. Well, yes, and all, yeah, because, like issues, 
issues like, like oh. that go away. All of a sudden, he's like, wait, I can't do my fundraiser anymore on stop this and stop that because the issue went away. So, yes, there has to be still something out there. Um, and, and then, look, it looks like Trump is lucking out on the the prosecution side in the sense of it doesn't i think you know with the way the legal system runs there'll be motions i don't think any trial is going to be decided before the election I, I none agree. of them and i said none. that from the beginning i see there there's none. no way that he's he's found anything no. uh before the election this is something that's going to have to have to happen uh with we at the ballot box and and all that other stuff well it'll work itself out but what do you make of of the recent claims of immunity that he should be able to do anything he wants. I mean, he brought up Harry. He, I think he, he brought up Harry Truman dropping the bomb and, and saying that, you know, if it were today, they would be prosecuting me. I'm going, I don't think you know how this all works. No, I mean, there's, there's a difference between what, especially if you're in a, in a, a certified war, which we were, Truman was president of the United States. It's a military action. Now, the International Court of The Hague, they could go after sure. Harry Truman, you know, an international court, but not domestically. Uh, it, it wouldn't happen. But there's a difference between immunity in an act that a president would do, an official act, you know, in, in a wartime situation. There's a difference between that and what a president does, especially if they diverted from their official actions into a campaign mode. And that's where the emails come in, and that's where this case becomes very interesting. I'm not sure Smith would have brought a case based strictly on president acted in an official you know, capacity. I don't think he would bring a, a case necessarily based on that. There has to be other things that he's looked at. So the broad immunity, yes, it'll pop up to the Supreme Court most likely, but uh, that doesn't mean that you can say, well, I'm, I'm immune from from you know all of the actions it's just like for example the, the hunter biden plea deal where where were the lawyers minds and saying well this will make him immune from anything you, you don't do those in plea deals you don't do future immunity on anybody i don't care yeah. if it's you know me Hunter biden whoever it is well trump's the same way you don't have just blanket forever immunity because you were elected, it doesn't work that way. It has to be immunity specific to the performance you know, of of the job. Now, what's interesting to me is you were you were politically aware during the Nixon era. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you had him trying the well. If the president doesn't, it's not illegal. This basic defense: if I do it, I'm president. I can't I can't be held accountable for anything. And was the country, you know, because look, it was it was a time of turmoil back then. I mean, I was just a small kid at the time. But, you know, were there people justifying that, you know, hey, the president could do whatever he wants? I mean, because I talk to people every day now that are saying, well, if, if Trump was president, he could do anything he wanted. And I'm going, yeah, I don't know about that. No, it it did not exist at, at that time. And by the way, at the, you know, my, my father was against Nixon. So in our family, my dad was against him. I I wasn't uh, really against Nixon because I looked at you know the ending of the war. I know he could have done it sooner, but you know I didn't I didn't have to get drafted as a result. So I was somebody who looked at the president favorably. All right, but at that time I didn't look at it as well. He can do what he wants. I looked at it as you know missing portions of the tape. Nixon obviously you know was involved in this, uh, and I think I like a lot of other people. If even if you weren't Nixon 
haters, if you like Nixon, I can't recall people saying, oh, he he had every he's president. He can do what he wants. That that wasn't that way back then. It wasn't. People who liked him still said, well, he can't just do whatever he wants. No, he's not a king. Uh, we don't have dictators right. here. And that's the that's the interesting part of this. Uh, you know, people who, who you know, have for years been telling me about the Constitution and, and waving it in my face uh, are willing to set it aside for expedience because they're going to get what they want. And it's it's a weird kind yeah. of moment. It is. It's a strange moment. That's why I said you, you never know what's going to happen after 2016. I use that as the, the bellwether mark in this country politically. I, I never thought so many different types of, of things would happen. But we have a historic time in our country's history where the executive power is definitely, as this moves past Trump, eventually, you know, a couple of years from now, four or five years from now, these are going to be tested situations in the, all the way to the Supreme Court and with Congress involved on future presidents. We've never had a situation where we've had a president indicted. So this is an opportunity, frankly, to, to clarify things like the Supreme Court. We've never had a situation so public of a member of the Supreme Court so so invested with other people giving him things. It's an opportunity now, if if they seize it, to do some first-time maneuvers and first-time changes in law. And that's how I view the Trump situation right now. It's unusual, no question about it, yeah. but it is an opportunity to, to kind of come out and define things because you're right, we don't have a king. Constitution doesn't mean the president has the right to do anything he or she wants anytime they want. But here's the thing that, that's very concerning to me is since there will not be a verdict, and I don't believe there's going to be between now and Election Day, uh, there is so much coverage of of Trump and all of this stuff. Uh, the Sunday shows were nothing but, you know, Donald Trump this, Donald Trump that. Um, and, and, you know, Biden's getting nothing. You know, there's there's literally nothing going on. Uh, there's there's uh -huh. no there's no discussion of his of his policies. There's no discussion of of what what he's done or what he wants to do. Um, you know, there's none of that. Uh, what do Democrats have to do to break through this noise? I mean, I mean, well, I have I'm, some I'm thoughts, you, but I'm curious yours. I'm glad you brought that up. Janet Yellen is going to be going this week, you know, t tomorrow is, is New Hampshire. I think she's going on Wednesday, if I'm right. Janet Yellen is going to be going to the Midwest. That's great. And she's going to to lay out, you know, what's going on with the economy. Now, the truth is, in the housing market, because I took a break, as you know, I was flipping houses, I took a break from the market. Now I'm looking at the market. And I'm like, okay, this is happening, you know, inflation, uh, the, the, the housing starts. So I'm looking at that. And I'm like, okay, it's better. But it's interesting when you talk to people, one, they do not relate in a sense that Biden was part of this. Number two, they aren't relating to the fact that it is getting better. It's still like, whoa, you know, oh, woe is me. And I understand some prices haven't come completely down, but there's no doubt the market, et cetera, the prices, everything's on on the move. OK, so yelling, getting out there, I think is is a great thing. But. They've got to do what the Republicans do. They do it so well. When when we used to leave the Capitol, Rick, we would have these talking points. And you could almost go to any congressional district and you'd be like, oh, wow. Well, Bob said that in the, in the 18th congressional district, what, what you know, Susie just said out in California. So I think they need to broaden the network and use wherever possible surrogates with a theme 
So I'm glad Yellen's out there, yeah. uh, you know, to get that yeah. message out. No, it's a great idea. It really is. It's a great idea. They're just never going to do it because <laughs> uh, they're not that yeah. organized. They're not that coordinated. What was it? Will Rogers said, you know, uh, you know, I'm not a member of an organized party. I'm a Democrat. Uh, that's reality. <laughs> that hasn't changed right. in, in 70 years. Right. Right. So I think they but they do have to get that message out there. And what what can, you know, Biden do? I think come out with some, you know, s striking policies, especially something geared towards um, and oh, I want to give you another example geared towards, um, you know, working people. He's got to beat that drum over and over. There was in, in the state of Ohio uh, near Montgomery County the Department of Homeland Security went into a business there. And that was a business where they were trying to go around the tariffs. Biden kept the tariffs. And because Biden did keep the tariffs and because Biden's policy of looking into tariff violations has occurred, there's a business that's trying to, you know, uh, not do the right thing when it comes to tariffs, trying to go through Thailand to avoid everything. So the department went in there. So Biden is enforcing through Homeland Security uh, the the components to make China behave itself. Yeah. No, and no. Uh, those are the things need to be that drum need. Who who knows what I just said about Ohio? I mean, I, I didn't. That's mean, a story. No, that's, that is a big story. That is a, that's I'm going to have to look into that because that's important. Right. Uh, now I have something to, uh, to talk to Scott Paul about uh, from the Alliance for American <laughs> Manufacturing because I think that's an important it's an important story. Um, but you know, also you know, look, you know, the, there's talk of doing something on on the border, and 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 I've been saying for a while that the Republicans don't want to solve the border crisis. They need it, uh, they, and they, they've said they're not going to do any. Some of them said they're not going to do anything until Trump's president, which tells me it's more about the issue than it's about the solution. Uh, but you know, I think now, and I think you agree that now is the time where maybe you could get something done. Because you know everybody believes something has to be done. Uh, I'm curious your thoughts. Right now, this moment, as we speak, the next three weeks to a month is the best time in probably 30 years to do something with the border. In 30 years. And the reason the president's engaged in the border, he got into the process late. You know, but he is he's woken up now to the fact that, you know, there needs to be something done with border policy. Look, the president served in Congress like I did. So he knows the whole give and take of this border situation for years like I do. But I think now the president said, you know, OK, wow, you know, this this is a, a, an opportune moment, more opportunity than when he was in Congress and when I was in Congress. So the Senate is reacting to it. Great. Now, people can say, well, you know, why didn't they react to it before? I don't know. OK, that's, they, they want to do it now. Life. That's like they want to do it. And this is the opportunity. This excited me when I saw this. Then I read the article today and did the, read the congressional translation in my mind where Speaker Johnson said, well, you know, this is comprehensive. We have to take a real good look at this. And, and that was the red flag of not now. It'll give Biden too much credit. That's it. That, and that's it. That's what that. And that's what that right is. There. And look, I, I've been saying we're never going to come to an agreement on immigration. Uh, Republicans learned their lesson on abortion. They're not going to let one of their chew toy issues go away. Uh, they need it too much to keep people uh, blinded by reality, uh, blinded to the, the reality that things are, are moving in the right direction. Uh, and this is one of those things. I, uh, I hope we get something done. 
Uh, and, and look, it'll probably be something nobody's happy with. And that's, you know, in negotiating contracts in the past, um, that's usually probably a, a, a pretty good deal then. It is. when And on this issue, I promise you, the far right and the far left will be very angry. And most people will be like, okay, they did something. And most members will have political protection because they did do something. Yep. And it's not going to be something so outrageous. But what will happen here is Speaker Johnson, the conservatives will go crazy. It's not enough. You know, we're not building 900-foot-tall walls. There'll be something there. But when I saw that the Speaker all of a sudden said, well, this is a comprehensive issue, I thought, okay, that's the signal that this this puppy is not going to be running around the room. There is a stake in the heart. Uh, but, Bob, as right. always, great stuff. I'm looking forward to what see what happens in New Hampshire. Uh, looking forward to having you back in, again real soon. Thank you, Rick. Our good friend, Bob Nay. I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, rick at thericksmithshow.com. Uh, do you think uh, you know Nikki Haley's got a shot? Uh, does she continue on? Rick at thericksmithshow.com. Quick break. Right back. Stick around. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1849. That was the birthday of U.S. labor leader Terence Powderly. Powderly was born the second youngest of 12 children to Irish immigrants in Carbondale, Pennsylvania. At the age of 14, he went to work for the Delaware and Hudson Railroad. In 1871, he joined the International Union of Machinists and Blacksmiths. Also involved in local politics, he was elected mayor of Scranton, Pennsylvania, seven years later. Powderly is most well-known for his leadership of the Knights of Labor. The Knights of Labor were a new kind of U.S. labor union in the late 1880s. They invited workers to join regardless of their trade or skill. They helped to lead the fight for the eight-hour day. In his autobiography, Powderly described why he was so committed to the labor movement, writing, five men in the country controlled the chief interests of 500,000 working men and can at any moment take the means of livelihood from two and a half million souls. The goal of the Knights of Labor was to give voice to those half a million souls. By 1879, Powderly rose to become the Grand Master Workman, the highest leader of the Knights. Powderly was weary of strikes as a tactic for labor. Yet, despite these personal qualms, the Knights led several successful strikes under his leadership, including one against railroad tycoon Jay Gould. The Knights grew to represent 700,000 workers across the nation. But then, the Haymarket tragedy occurred when a bomb was thrown by an unknown assailant at a workers' rally in Chicago in 1886. In the aftermath of Haymarket, there was a national backlash against labor unions. The Knights bore the brunt as membership dropped by nearly 90%. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. back to the rick smith show check out our website the ricksmithshow.com so you know bob was talking about the the economy and inflation and and that stuff and what, what's interesting to me is uh the folks over at the groundwork collaborative uh who we've had on the program 
uh, over the, I think, couple, several months back. Uh, they're the folks who went and yeah, they were listening to all of the uh, all of the earnings calls, you know, you know, after the, the, the pandemic and, you know, you know, as inflation was rising and people were losing their minds. Uh, they were the ones who were saying, hey, we're actually listening to what they're saying. You know, these CEOs and these these board of directors and all the, the shareholder meetings were listening to this stuff and they're bragging about the fact that they're gouging our eyes out. They're bragging about the fact that they're making record profits because they're able to raise prices so obscene, so obscenely high that uh, they're lying in their pockets. And, you know, of course, that doesn't fit the narrative that it's all Joe Biden's fault. That doesn't fit the right wing. Hey, it's, 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 all, it's all Joe Biden because everything has to be Biden's fault. It's the only way they're going to be able to, 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 to unseat him. Because, look, the guy's done some really good stuff. Well, they've got a new report out. And what they're saying is, look, you know, uh, the reality is, uh, you know, prices have risen. Uh, It's risen by uh, 3.4% over the past year. Uh, Input costs for producers have risen just 1%. And you go, what does that mean? Well, that means (laughs) that corporate profits drove more than 53% of inflation in the second and third quarters of 2023. That means that them just going, hey, we can raise prices because, hey, we can. Um, that's, what's, that's, what's, that's what's hurting. That's what's going after people. And look, the lack of competition, you know, the fact that we're seeing more and more consolidation and more buyouts and more mergers and more monopolization, this has a part of it. Uh, there's, there's no competition. There's no, hey, we want our, we want to take your share of the market, so we're going to lower prices. None of that now. Now, what they say is uh, 11% of price gro- growth in the past 40 years prior to the pandemic was because of you know, corporations going, hey, we, we can raise prices because we can. Just 11% of the overall growth in prices. Uh, the rest of it had had to do with, you know, actual inputs. And I said right after, you know, we started to open up and the economy started to, you know, to open up and, and things started to started to you know, get a little tight and, and people were going, oh, inflation's coming. And you go, yeah, it's, it's going to happen. I remember saying right after that, going, look, all the stuff that you're buying right now was produced, you know, either, you know, before the pandemic or during where the inputs weren't, weren't nearly as high as what they're gouging us for. This is good old-fashioned opportunism. They're they're robbing us blind. And people are like, no, no, it's Joe Biden. Uh, I don't know when we became a socialist country that Biden has control over all the prices that corporate America charges us, but somehow in, in my conservative friends' minds, this is he has this power. There's a switch somewhere in the Oval Office. Uh, gouge, gouge consumers. It's a gouge consumers. It's right next to the the, the, the old Soviet red phone. So they got the gouge consumers uh, thing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is a surprise. And are you surprised by it? Is it is it a shock that that corporate America is is responsible for the a big portion of the inflation? Now this is right in line with many of the other studies that I've seen that put it right around 53, 54%. That's probably right where it is. So maybe, here's an idea, maybe we should start taxing them. 
Just my thoughts. Want to hear yours? Email me, rick at thericksmithshow.com. I do answer all my emails personally. Sometimes I use them here on the program. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you back here next time. You've been listening to The Rick Smith Show. Email Rick at rick at thericksmithshow.com. Until next time, this has been The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.